as our president is coughing up fur balls overseas and screaming about having cancer in front of dystopian landfill garbage heaps, he came down with COVID and his doctor assured us he was A-OK. The presidential assisted living facility known as the White House reported that Joe Biden, corn pop, is a member of the Clean Plate Club. He showed his clean plate to his nurse and uh, he was pandering weeks before to the Saudis to make up the difference from the oil that he's basically denied us from being able to drill for ourselves. He's making sure to honor the Holocaust as well. And this celebration of honoring the Holocaust seems to typically involve a smorgasbord of Latinx breakfast tacos that Jill Biden will be serving out and also uh, being served by Palestinian Irishmen, while RuPaul better works it on the stage as he reads Goodnight Moon to the first graders chowing down on the Hispanic feast or something like that. His supporters were trying to codify abortion. They were shouting their abortion while also advocating to keep the southern border open for thousands of illegals marching in more frantically than a group of parading January 6th Capitol building tourists, which led to a 27-year-old illegal alien impregnating a 10-year-old illegal alien who had to illegally travel into the country, rent an apartment, and then travel out of the state to get an abortion. But after Grandpa Corn Pop stopped yelling at the clouds, he whispered, we can do this. To which the illustrious Dr. Jill screamed, see, say, Poidway. And a team of law professors who were befuddled at trying to define what a woman is stampeded over top of Josh Hawley just to scream transophobe at the Crisis Pregnancy Center with chief running mouth Liawatha Elizabeth Warren leading the charge with her glistening tomahawk. It's the Adrian Slade Show. Destroying the media lies and dismantling the narratives, one story at a time. It's the Adrian Slade Show. So, on the last podcast, we talked about the World Economic Forum's influence on these governments implementing these ESG environmental social governance uh, standards trying to move in environmentally friendly ways and how it's decimating their nations. And in doing so, it's basically allowing the World Economic Forum to use those governments to grab land and build their utopias. But it's destroying these civilizations. It's, the Netherlands is fighting back. We did a whole thing about the tri-state city project. They're trying to bankrupt the farmers by saying, well, there's too much nitrogen oxide in the soil, and so you're going to have to find different fertilizer, and not all these farms are going to be able to stay in business because they can't keep up with the new standards to which they will have to give up their land, the government will take it, and then they can build their new utopia. Really insidious how they're doing it. And in Sri Lanka, they went and did the organic farming, and uh, it just fell apart. Now their country uh, is in chaos, the uh, the prime minister, he fled and then emailed his resignation. They they took over his house and they you know lit it on fire and were swimming in the swimming pools and now we're stuck with a collapsed economy and a collapsed nation, all because they wanted to go with organic farming and various other environmental measures. We're seeing it in Germany. Germany's pushing back. We're seeing Italy. Italy's prime minister is getting out of Dodge and resigning. It's happening all over the globe. All these different nations are rising up because they're falling apart 
due to the implementation of all these environmental standards and environmental goals. And so, and, and I do want to watch who is replaced in these nations because, you know, we go back to the Venezuelan uh, episode I did a couple years ago. Everybody was happy. Look, they're rising up. The people are rising up. And then we looked into who Juan Guaido was and his party. And we're like, uh, it's another socialist party. This isn't going to go anywhere. Of course, it hasn't. We haven't seen anything since. And who are they going to replace it with? Is this going to be Kathy Hochul? You know, everybody was all stoked to get you know, Governor Cuomo out of New York. And now you got this communist tyrant out there wanting to relegate you to muskets. So where does this all go? with these leaders being ousted, who's replacing them? Hopefully it's people that want to push back on all of these environmentally uh, destructive policies, but we don't know. Could be that they're running these people out because they're not 100% on board. Now, Sri Lanka was just to replace them with somebody who is even more fervent. I don't know. We're going to have to watch it and see. It looks like Sri Lanka's pushed back because of the World Economic Forum standards and they may replace him with somebody against it. Hopefully so. But these days, I don't have a lot of luck on that. I don't have a lot of hope and, uh, you know, I'm not counting on it that much. I mean, World Economic Forum actually had on their website, they deleted it, but they had on their website how because they're moving to organic farming in Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka is going to be this rich, lush economy. And they're in the toilet because everything these environmentalists do, there's negative effects to it. But they profit off of it. They're profiting off the move. They're going to move America off fossil fuels, get us through somehow with Saudi Arabia being the teat. And then they're going to try to push us into lithium batteries and, and electric vehicles and wind turbines and all that. And who makes the money off of that? China. Uh, probably the families of the politicians pushing this. Other people who are uh, influential, BlackRock down the line, they're all going to profit and you are going to pay the price with brownouts and blackouts and you know high uh, energy bills and, and vehicles that are inefficient. They don't, they don't go the distance. We're going to get into all of that because what they're pushing us towards is solar panels and wind turbines and electric vehicles. And I'm going to go through some things that they're not telling you about all of these industries, different aspects of these industries that are not being talked about, that should be talked about, things that show that they're not environmentally friendly, and then who profits off of it. This push to squeeze or force the democratic Western world in America, because we're a constitutional republic, into these green energy initiatives and and into this green energy tech is nothing more than one or two things. It's either a giant grift to which people like Paul Pelosi, you know, Nancy Pelosi's husband, uh, may have a stake in so that when we all move to this, as many of us who can, the rest of us will be left high and dry because we can't economically afford it. They get to cash out massively. And then the other side is it's nations who want to hinder our energy dominance and our energy power by forcing us onto inefficient green energy types of uh, vehicles, not just EVs, but just energy vehicles, you know, like solar panels, wind turbines, and what have you, while they stick to coal-fired plants and oil 
And then they get to push control over top of us. But I kind of think it's probably both. And so I think we need to go through the various different methods of green energy and show how they're not green at all. They tell you they're green, but they ain't really green. So let's start with solar panels. And actually, before I get into this, this there's a, a trend I noticed when I was doing my research. It's the most eye-opening things I've done while doing research is that every single article that I referenced, either slightly on the right or fully on the left, they always list the unintended, you know, it's the unintended consequences that every article is listed with some addendum that explains away, you know, what's happening and frames these incidents as random one-offs. You know, climate change, though, is the, is the best way to go, and we need to do green energy. You know, they explain it away. They'll go through and show all these inefficiencies and how they're toxic to the green movement, but they'll say, but, the, you know, they're still the better way, and they're better than oil. Every last one of them. So this is from the LA Times, and this is about solar panels. California went big on rooftop solar. And now that's a problem for landfills. Maybe it's a problem for the landfill that Joe Biden was screaming in front of. Beginning in 2006, the state focused on how to incentivize people to take up solar power, showered subsidies on homeowners who installed photovoltaic uh, panels, but had no comprehensive plan to dispose of them. See, there's a problem right there. Subsidies. You can't fix a market. You can't manipulate a market by providing financial subsidies and cutouts and, and giveaways for this to work because no one is flocking to these energy means because they're not efficient enough to make us go, hmm, you know, I think I'd like to buy that product. And the market would di dictate when they are good and ready. Sometimes people buy them when they're not quite there, but they just have them as sort of luxury uh, you know, items that they can show off with, which is the Teslas right now. But then others, when they do come into their own, suddenly people flock to them and economies of scale kick in. And then suddenly the price point goes down and everyone benefits, right? Flat screen TVs, right? So I'm not going to go off on economics here, but this is kind of what we're dealing with. We're propping up this industry. They were doing it in California. So back to the article, now panels purchased under those programs are nearing the end of their typical 25 to 30 year life cycle. Many are already winding up in landfills where in some cases they could potentially contaminate groundwater. We're going to get into that with the mining of lithium batteries too. I would have to say carbon emissions, which help plants grow CO2, probably a better trade-off than contaminating our freaking groundwater. Anyways, they could potentially contaminate groundwater with toxic heavy metals such as lead, selenium, and cadmium. Sam Vanderhoof, a solar industry expert and chief executive at Recycle PV Star, says that only one in 10 panels are actually recycled, according to the estimates drawn from the International Renewable Energy Agency. The data on decommissioned panels and from industry leaders. Quote, the industry is supposed to be green, Vanderhoof said, but in reality, it's all about the money. Huh. But as California barreled ahead on its renewable energy program, focused on rebates more recently on a proposed solar tax, again, manipulating the market, government intervention screws the market up, questions about how to handle that waste uh, that would accrue years later were never fully addressed. Now, both regulators and panel man manufacturers are realizing they don't even have the capacity to handle what comes next. Quote, this trash is probably going to arrive sooner than we expected, and it's going to be a huge amount of waste, said Saruso Durham, 
an assistant professor at University of Calgary's uh, Helsinki School of Business in Canada. Quote, but while all the focus has been building this renewable capacity, not much consideration has been put on the end of life of these technologies. Duran co-wrote a recent article in Harvard Business Review that noted the industry's, quote, capacity is woefully underprepared for that deluge of waste that is likely to come. Quote, there is no doubt that there will be an increase in the solar panels entering the waste system in the next decade or so. A.J. Orban, vice president of, quote, or of We Recycle Solar, a Phoenix-based company that breaks down panels and extracts valuable metals while disposing the toxic elements of them. Quote, that's never a question. The vast majority of We Recycle Solar's business comes from California, but the company has no facilities in the state, probably taxed out of the state. Instead, the panels are trucked to a site in Yuma, Arizona. And that's because California's rigorous permitting system for toxic materials makes it exceedingly difficult to set up shop. <laughs> Told you. It's always something stupid like that. Recycling solar panels isn't a simple process. Highly specified and specialized equipment and workers are needed to separate the aluminum frame and junction box from the panel without shattering it into glass. Special furnaces are then used. Heat panels, uh, they use those heat panels to recover silicon. In most state, panels are classified as hazardous materials, which require expensive restrictions on packaging, transport, and storage. The vast majority of the residential solar arrays in the U.S. are crystalline silicone panels, which contain lead, although it's less prevalent in newer panels. Thin film solar panels, which contain uh, cadmium and selenium, are primarily used in utility-grade applications. Orban said the economics of the process do not make a compelling case for recycling. Only about 2 to $4 worth of materials are recovered from each panel. The majority of the processing costs are tied up in labor, he said, even while recycling panels at scale would not be more economical. So it's actually better to just junk them. <laughs> Imagine that. Most researchers at Photovoltaic Panels uh, is focused on recovering solar-grade silicon to make recycling economically viable. That skews the economic incentives against recycling. The National Renewable Energy Laboratory estimates that it costs uh, roughly $20 to $30 to recycle a panel versus $1 to $2 to send it to a landfill. So where do you think that's going to go? So now we need to get into other ecological environmental uh, impacts by solar panels, more importantly, solar farms. So <laughs> this part is going to address the solar farms and how the construction of them, the concrete foundation footings for the panels, how they're destroying runoff in certain areas because of where they're building these things. It's unbelievable. So Louisa County in Virginia Farmers say solar energy projects are destroying their properties. The neighbor said since last fall, every time it rains, a little more of their land is washed away by excess stormwater runoff from Dominion Energy's Belcher Solar Project. They built this thing on cliffs nobody had any business being on, Mr. Mark said of the land that he owns. The solar project dating back to July 23rd, 2020 was implemented and the stormwater runoff from Belcher flowed into Harris Creek. The Dominion Energy later ordered, uh, was ordered a fine of $50,700. Last October, Dominion confirmed that the contamination had been 
uh, hand removed from impact areas and erosion and sediment control repairs and improvements were in place. However, that was around the same time neighbors of the solar plant started experiencing issues and eventually documented them on social media. In April 21st, 2021, DEQ inspection report details signs of erosion from fall from outflow and outfall basins behind Mr. Marks and Mr. Collier's property in Louisa County. So that's one issue with these solar farms. Here's another one from Reuters. The Solar Star Project in California is among the largest solar energy facility in the world, boasting 1.7 million panels spread over 3,000 acres of Los Angeles. Its gargantuan scale points to an uncomfortable fact for the industry. A natural gas power plant 100 miles south produces the same amount of energy on just 122 acres. So less acreage you have to mess up with these solar panels that you end up ruining the land for its life. The dynamic uh, encapsulates the uh, industry's biggest obstacle for growth. Solar farms require huge amounts of land, and there's a fast-growing movement fueled by politicized social media campaigns to prevent solar developers from permitting them in new rural American sites. So here's Reuters' propaganda portion of the article. Opposition to these projects is being organized on Facebook, where... The number of pages devoted to blocking solar development has exploded in recent years. The pages air a mix of legitimate concerns, such as loss of scenic vistas, tree removal, soil erosion, with misinformation about climate change and alleged health hazards from solar electricity. The false claims include arguments that climate change is a hoax to groundless assertions that solar farms lead to carcinogen cadmium into the soil, which... We started out with in the L.A. Times article, oddly enough, and nearby waterways when it rains, like the Louisa County farmers were talking about Harris Creek, or that they rarely produce electricity, which if the sun isn't out, they're not going to, and 122 acres of a natural gas plant is going to beat a 3,000-acre solar panel farm. So check this out. In, in the Korea Herald, more than 200 million trees have been cut down in South Korea over the last three years to make space for solar panels, according to the opposition lawmakers who argue that the government's renewable push should not be a replacement of nuclear energy. Since the government strongly pushed for solar panel businesses in 2017, 4,407 hectares of forest have been damaged, 15 times the space of, of an area in Seoul, according to Representative Yoon Sang-jing, of the main opposition Liberty Korean party. So wait a minute, if we start tearing down the rainforest, the lungs of the earth, then the environmentalists are going to get mad because we're taking them down for various, uh, you know, lumber projects and things like that. But we could just knock them all down for solar panels. Yeah. Hell screw your trees then. Right. The removal of trees, which stood at about 310,000 in 2016 jumped to about 670,000 in 2017 and over 1.3 million in 2018. How many are going behind and replanting trees? Remember those projects? Well, every time we knock down a tree, we'll plant a new one. No, they're not doing that here. By region, the most deforested area is North Jiangsang province, where over 600,000 trees have been cut down. It was followed by South Jalalabad province that saw the removal of 460 trees or 460,000 trees. Although it is good for the government to push for renewable energy as a complementary 
energy source, it cannot replace the nation's mainstay energy sources, Representative Yoon said. So it even gets better. So outside of the toxic runoff and the, the, you know, the contamination of groundwater from the, from the materials used in, in these solar panels, the fact that you can't recycle them, it's better off to throw them in the landfill, and the fact that they've decided to cut down tons of trees to put these things in, this article, also from Reuters, this solar plant accidentally incinerates up to 6,000 birds a year a rare and unusual type of solar panel plant that concentrates sunlight in California is accidentally killing up to 6,000 birds a year, with staff reporting that the birds keep flying into concentrated beams of sunlight and spontaneously bursting into flame. The sight of a bird being fried to death is so common that the solar plant in California's Mojave Desert, the workers there have nicknamed the smoldering birds steamers because they leave tiny wisps of white smoke behind as they burn up in the sky. Now, you know, we've been, we've been led to see on bottles of Dawn soap that person who's taking the soap and they're cleaning the oil spill off the back of the little duckling. Oh, my gosh. They don't care that these things are burning up in, into instant steam over top of solar panels. So why is this happening? Well, it's mainly due to the, over, the plant's overall design and location. Unlike typical solar farms that use photovoltaic panels on a large scale, the site in Ipava is built on entirely different principles. To catch sunlight, the plant uses five square miles, 12.9 square kilometers, of giant mirrors that focuses beams on concentrated sunlight onto three different 40-story tall towers. And once the beams are focused on the towers, their energy can be used to power turbines inside, which generates electricity for the power grid. The problem is that all this concentrated light around the towers makes them a prime location for insects to hang around, which attracts the birds. When the birds cross in front of all that concentrated light to get the insects, they burn up in seconds. And the situation is made even worse by the fact that the plant sits along the Pacific Flyway, a popular migratory route for many different types of birds, including protected species like varied uh, thrushes and northern goshawks. According to Sanguan, a federal biologist estimates that up to 6,000 birds perish at the plant every year. And even though officials at the facility say they're trying to come up with a solution, little has changed since the launch in 2014. So they're burning up, they're burning up birds. They're, they're burning up protected species. They're, it, solar panels are obviously a problem and they don't provide the energy we need. So to me, it's a grift. Follow the money. Find out who has investments like Terry McAuliffe did with electric vehicles. Find out who has investments in solar panels. So now we've got to take a look at wind turbines. They're next on the list. From Fortune.com, the latest landfill problem comes from the renewable energy industry. You don't say. A wind turbine's blades can be longer than a Boeing 747 wing. So at the end of the lifespan... They can't just be hauled away. First, you need to saw through the lissom fiberglass using a diamond-encrusted industrial saw to create three pieces small enough to be strapped to a tractor trailer. A municipal landfill in Casper, Wyoming. It's the final resting place for 870 blades whose days making renewable energy have come to an end. The severed fragments look like bleached whale bones nestled against one another. Tens of thousands of aging blades are coming down from street towers around the world 
and have nowhere to go but landfills. In the U.S. alone, about 8,000 will be removed each of the next four years. Europe, which has already been dealing with a larger problem, has about 3,800 coming down annually. Unbelievable. Through, um, through at least 2022, according to Bloomberg NEF, it's going to get worse. Most were built more than a decade ago when installations were less than a fifth of what they are now. Built to withstand hurricane force winds, the blades can't easily be crushed, recycled, or repurposed. That's created an urgent search for alternatives in places that lack wide-open prairies. In the U.S., they go to the handful, handful of landfills that accept them in Lake Mills, Iowa, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and Casper, where they will be interred in stacks that reach 30 feet under. Wind turbines, or the wind turbine blades, will be there ultimately forever. Bob Capadonna, chief operating officer for the North American unit of Paris-based Viola Environment SA, which is searching for better ways to deal with the massive waste, quote, most landfills are considered a dry tomb. The last thing we want to do is create even more environmental challenges. Yeah, really? Of course, they have to add it to the unfounded propaganda. This is what they say on their site. On social media, posters derided the inability to recycle something advertised as good for the planet and offered suggestions of reusing them uh, as links in a border wall or <laughs> roofing for a homeless shelter. The backlash was instant and uninformed. Batov said critics said that they thought wind turbines were supposed to be good for the environment. And how can it be sustainable if it ends up in a landfill? Norway's NGO raises concerns over environmental impacts of the chemicals used in the wind turbine blades. Bisphenol A in wind turbines damages human fertility. This is back in March 22 of 2021. Bisphenol A and similar substances are among the most troublesome substances that are now finding their ways into drinking water, water courses, and our sea areas in larger and larger quantities. Now we're back to the drinking water and the, you know, the contamination of it. Quite small concentrations of bisphenol A damages the fertility of humans in all organisms. And despite this fact, the quantity and the use of this dangerous chemical increases quite significantly. One of the biggest problem areas is the huge increase in epoxy compounds in the turbine blades in the wind, inside the wind turbines. The Norwegian Environment Agency released the information that the EU is preparing new, stricter regulations and that in this connection, the EU Chemicals Register, ECH, ECHA and REACH, lay, laid this out for consultation. With the enormously increasing use of epoxy glass filler, or fiber for several purposes comes a huge environmental problem, especially within wind power. This use is increasing almost exponentially and the industry completely lacks a circular economy for disposal. Again, they can't dispose of these things. They got to shove them in landfills. This is especially serious as bisphenol A is one of the main con uh, constituents of the weight of the turbine blades. And Relation to wearing and peeling, this problem is significant as the wind turbines are deployed in increasingly tougher and tougher environments and more demanding environments. This wear results in the peeling of the material in the form of small particles called micro nanoplastics. And now for the health concerns surrounding bisphenol A. Keep in mind 
that the wind, rain, and heat from the sun over time degrade and erode, erode the bisphenol A epoxy resin in an industrial wind turbine and the blades from it, it releases it into the surrounding environment. And when these blades are damaged and replaced, at the very least, they cannot be economically recycled. And it is yet to be demonstrated that they even, that even in despite of the enormous cost that is technically possible, um, they end up in a landfill degrading and releasing the bisphenol A into the soil and the water systems. By today's standard, in a relatively small uh, uh, 1.5 megawatt industrial wind turbine, the blades contain about 10 tons of bisphenol A-based polycarbonate and epoxy resins. Bisphenol A is uh, also present in, in the wiring insulation, the high voltage insulators, the circuit boards, and even the paints on the industrial wind turbines. To which what's even interesting is they get into the aspect of the birds being killed, chopped up by these wind turbines. They've had to actually paint some of the blades black just so that they can kind of dodge this situation. So uh, that's kind of an issue. Chopping up birds, just like solar panel factories are turning them into steam clouds. The Texas heat wave highlights a major problem with wind power. Bloomberg reported that wind turbines in Texas are operating at just 8% of their capacity because of low wind speeds. This is really unfortunate because of demand for electricity is on a strong rise because of the weather. There is a certain irony that the biggest wind energy generator in the U.S. cannot utilize its capacity to serve its citizens at a time of peak demand. But it is certainly no surprise that this is happening. Wind power generation depends entirely on the weather, and when the weather is unfavorable, Generation drops. Europe was reminded of the importance of wind speeds last year when these fell below average, causing lower than normal wind power outputs and partially contributing to the energy crunch that hit much of the continent in the autumn. The wind industry recognizes this fact. Wind industry journal Wind Power Monthly has had an article that explained how wind park output depended more on the wind speeds than on the turbine performance, regardless of the age of the wind turbines. So they're inefficient. They end up in the landfill. They have toxic chemicals. Sounds exactly like we talked about with the solar panels. So during heat waves, you won't be able to charge those electric cars. In fact, Tesla is saying they don't want Texas drivers to charge their cars during peak hours. Tesla sent an over-the-air OTA notification to drivers in Texas asking owners to avoid charging their electric vehicles during peak hours of energy use. The request appeared on Tesla dashboards amid a record-setting heat wave that strained the Texas power grid and prompted its operator, ERCOT, E-R-C-O-T, to warn of possible blackouts. As a response to the unprecedented power demand during extreme heat, Tesla and ERCOT asked drivers and residents in Texas to conserve electricity by not charging their electric vehicles from the afternoon through the evening and by turning up their thermostats at home. Which, you know, they actually came out with an article recently that said, you know, when are we going to give up that luxury of air conditioning? Why don't you raise your temperatures up to 83 degrees during the summer? <laughs> so everything they're doing is inefficient. Every bit of it is wrong. And the way that they're trying to push these electric vehicles, listen to Pete Buttigieg. Mayor Pete, listen to him our grand old secretary of transportation who gets driven out to D.C. so he can ride his bike on in. 
Listen to him talk about electric vehicles. We're for cutting the cost of electric vehicles because when you have an electric vehicle, then you're also going to be able to, to save on gas, but you got to be able to afford it in the first place. Right. right. Now, we're actually starting to see on some models the, the costs come to where even if the, the, your car payment's a little higher, your gas payment will be a little lower and you come out ahead. But the prices still need to come down mm-hmm. for most Americans to be able to get in an EV. All right, Pete, let's look at your vehicle replacement. Before we get into the environmental impact of the mining and the batteries and all of the things that go with it, let's look at the fallacies of the benefits of the electric vehicle because the way they're selling them, they're not telling you the truth on a lot of levels. Auto experts uncover hidden truths about the EV range, the range of the charge. You know, you're driving in your car, you fill up your tank, you know you're going to turn the AC on, that's going to use a little, you know, little bit more power so it's going to burn up it's going to add in the burning up of uh you know the the, the gas that you use but what happens you can just pull off fill up keep on going right well the level of charge is being sold as a certain amount and how much mileage you can get out of it where there's a lot of fluctuation and a lot of downside so neil winton an auto industry analyst this is from the western journal Analyst and senior contributor Forbes said that while EVs may look ideal if you're just going by the manufacturer's spec sheet, the real-world performance of these cars is very, very different. It's very different than what it's promised. The problem, Winton says, is that range numbers, they are derived from driving conditions divorced from real-world driving. Instead, they're based on computerized, worldwide, harmonized light vehicles test procedures, or WLTP, a laboratory test that aims to measure and standardize EV range numbers. This means that the range you could be or you could get in real-world scenarios up to 30 is up to 32% less than what's promised. 32% less. You know, so that you look at like a refrigerator and you go, oh, this is the EV uh, rating and you know, you think, okay, I get an electric vehicle. I can get this many miles on a charge. Nope. It fluctuates by many factors. The biggest deviation Winton found when he looked at 20 different EV models in a test published, um, the biggest loser was the Mini Electric, which had a WLTP range claim of 145 miles, but could only muster 98.5 miles given real-world battery capacity. When you get on the highway, things get worse. The Polestar 2, manufactured by Volvo's performance brand, Winton's test results found drivers would only get about 40% of the advertised range. Why, you ask? Well, if you drive at normal cruising speeds with the air conditioner on, the medium system doing its stuff, or the media system doing its stuff, and the heater making you snug, its drain on the battery and the manufacturer uh, that they didn't tell you, they didn't figure it into the calculation of the vehicle's numbers, is considerable. EVs do worse than advertised on the highway for a number of reasons. For starters, electric motors are far more efficient in stop-and-go traffic conditions. And that's because of what's called regenerative braking. EVs use the friction caused when you slow your car down to recharge the battery. So if you're in town driving your Tesla like AOC, you're going to go up to the Whole Foods and, you know, you're going to go to that bougie bodega. Or what, what did Jill Biden call it? Bodega or something. It's bodega. Stop and go. Lights. 
hitting, you know, stop and go traffic, slamming on them brakes, you're retra- recharging your battery. But that doesn't happen when you're just cruising along, doing a long trip cross country. Then there's a matter of cruising speeds on the highway. The fact that it's always higher than the legal limit, no matter where in the world you are. New, normal cruising speeds in Britain are about 75 miles per hour. The actual legal limit is 70, but the accepted speed is almost what drivers seem to think they'll drive to avoid pr- prosecution is 80 miles per hour. In mainland Europe, the actual speed limit is 82, so 90 should be possible. At these higher speeds, the impact on range of the charge is even more devastating. In Germany, there are some unlimited speed sections of a motorway. The value-seeking electric car buyer will demand that the manufacturer says the battery fully charged will offer 300 miles, and it will offer 300 miles. He continued, No fangling or bamboozling with concepts like WLTP will be acceptable. Same automotive journalists are slowly discovering this dark secret as well. A Wall Street Journal uh, reporter described a hellish road trip where she took a brand new Kia electric vehicle, which ended with her spending more time charging her car than freaking sleeping. Not only did the battery's vehicle deplete more quickly than advertised, charging times were much slower than expected. Only real-world data should be used. Manufacturers should come clean about extended motorway fast lane cruising. And on most EVs, this cuts the range by 30 to 50%. Now think about if you're hauling stuff. See, this must be conceded. The impact of cold weather on range charges can mean up to 30% of a range cut. Similarly, impact of full loads of people, luggage, whatever they're pulling in reality, and the necessity of regularly filling only up to 80% of capacity to protect the life of the battery must be looked into. There are reports that tire wear might be excessive because of the huge weight of the batteries. But this currently is only conjecture and needs to be confirmed. Again, every single article I read has some caveat, an assumption that fossil fuels are worse without any citation, just an assumption that, you know, we just all know and agree on that end. So they're lying to you about how great these vehicles are. So now let's get into impacts of creating the vehicle, creating the battery. And it goes from raw materials down to the user end. So let's go through it. The raw materials to make a battery. The environmental toll of electric batteries for electric cars begins with the product before it's even assembled. Most notably in the mining of its active material, lithium. To extract lithium from the earth, an immense amount of water is pumped down into salt flats bringing mineral-rich salt water to the surface. Lithium is filtered out, and the mixture is left behind after the water evaporates. This water intensiveness is problematic for several reasons, including its potential to contaminate the water supply. Further complicating the issue is the location of these mines, many of which are found in desert regions in Australia and China. Imagine that. More than half of the Earth's lithium supply, however, is in the Lithium Triangle, spanning the and Andreas Mountains, uh, the section in Arge- Argentina, Bolivia, and Chile. More than half of the Earth's lithium supply, however, is in the Lithium Triangle, spanning Andean Mountain sections of Argentina, Bolivia, and Chile. 
The area is one of the driest places on the globe, and lithium mining consumes as much as 65% of the region's water, according to the United Nations. Lithium isn't the only potentially hazardous electric vehicle battery material. The process of mining cobalt, the majority of which is done in the Democratic Republic of Congo, produces hazardous byproducts that can toxify the environment. Cobalt mine sites often uh, contain sulfur, which generates sulfuric acid when exposed to air and water. This process wreaks havocs on rivers, streams, aquatic life, creating damage that can last for hundreds of years, according to the United Nations. So then there's the production of the batteries, because the methods to require the raw materials uh, are and subsequent environmental effects. Uh, battery production is likely the most environmentally da damaging stage of the manufacturing of electric vehicles. Research by the European Union agency found that batteries alone account for 10 to 75 percent of the energy and 10 to 70 percent of the greenhouse gas emissions resulting from the entire production of the vehicle. If you remove the lithium battery from the equation, the production of electric and gas powered vehicles is very similar, thus having nearly identical efforts on uh, effects on the environment. Its inclusion, however, puts electric vehicle manufacturing at um, its impact over the top. The same EEA study found that production of electric cars emits between 1.3 and two times the amount of greenhouse gases than that of the internal combustion vehicles. So then you put them in use. Critics of the electric vehicles often are quick to point out that the green vehicles aren't in fact green. They are charged by an electrical grid, likely powered by fossil fuels. Unless the electricity utilized to power the electric car battery is derived from entirely renewable energy, the emissions are associated with it. And again, it's the recycling. Electric and internal combustion vehicles have drastically different environmental effects when the cars are in use, but when it comes to recycling, the situation is completely reversed. As little as 5% of the world's lithium batteries are recycled. According to Chemical and Engineering News, a stark contrast to the 99% of lead car batteries recycled in the United States. The dearth of recycled lithium batteries has significant economic repercussions, but it also takes a dire toll on the environment. Most lithium batteries end up in landfills where their hazardous components can leak into the soil and the groundwater. Enough with the CO2 and the carbon in the air. I'm worried about the drinking water. Landfills are also a major contributor to greenhouse gas emissions, the EPA reports. So then, why are so few lithium cars recycled? Well, in short, because it takes a lot of time, money, and effort. Just like the solar panels, just like the wind turbines, there just isn't a market to do it. It's just not cost-effective. It's amazing. And when you get into the story of the Native Americans in Thacker Pass, a remote area in Nevada... And the, the mining efforts that they want to do for lithium there, it gets even more crazy. Standing on the entrance of the planned Thacker Pass lithium mine in the remote north of Nevada, the largest known lithium deposit in the United States, Myron Smart, a Native American tribe member, expressed his great concern over the harm the mine would bring to his homeland and to his culture. Thacker Pass is sacred to our people. Some of our ancestors are massacred in Thac uh, Thacker Pass. The 59-year-old Native American said, pointing out the direction where the massacre happened in 1865. The planned Thacker Pass lithium mine has drawn strong resistance from environmental groups, 
they basically said that one of the biggest issues, again, is the drinking water. On top of the fact that he said local Indian tribes would never desecrate these places and requested their sacred sites to be afforded respect. Thacker Pass is essential to the survival of our traditions. Our traditions are tied to the land, and when our land is destroyed, our traditions are destroyed. The mine will harm our traditional land, significant cultural sites, water, air, and wildlife. Suddenly, they don't care about the Native Americans. Suddenly, ah, eh, screw them. We'll keep them on the reservation, and then we'll destroy the reservation's uh, ec- ec- ecology. You know, we'll just destroy the water and the wildlife. It's, it's ridiculous. So basically, you can sum up that solar panels are not that green. You can basically sum up that wind turbines are not green. You can sum up that electric vehicle production is not green. And then you can also show that it's not even efficient. It doesn't even give you the miles on the charge that you need to get around. Although they're going to lie to you with a little graph and a little model to bamboozle you into thinking it does. So that's the grift. And when you find out that China, five of the top 10 um, solar panel and wind turbine companies are Chinese. Another five of the 10 top lithium battery uh, manufacturers are from China. You get to see the grift. I've always said they're looking to take the power away from America, away from Saudi Arabia, and then move that energy power to China. And China's laughing all the way. I'm Adrian Slade. Thanks for tuning in. Check out the podcast, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spreaker. Tune in. You can follow me on uh Twitter at Rants Out Loud, on Truth Social at Adrian Slade, on Getter at Adrian Slade, uh, or I think it's at Rants Out Loud. Uh, you can also follow me on Gab, Clout Hub, and Parlor, and uh, donate to the show, anchor.fm slash Adrian Slade slash support. You can also call to be on the show, 1929 GoGoUSA. That's 1929 GoGoUSA. <laughs>